0: Our scripture reading this morning is going to be different than what's printed. It's going to be from Jeremiah. Please find Jeremiah chapter 34 in your Bibles. Be reading Jeremiah 34 verses 8 to 22. Jeremiah chapter 34 beginning at verse 8. This is the word of God. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them, that each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew, his brother, in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into the covenant that each man should set free his male servant, and each man his female servants, so that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free, and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you six years, and you shall send him out free from you. But your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. Although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name, yet... You turned and profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant, and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and female servants. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, And I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth." Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has gone away from you. Behold, I am going to command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to the city and they shall fight against it and take it and burn it with fire and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Difficult words. But the Word our Lord stands forever.
1: It is, of course, uh, good to be back. A big thank you to those who stepped up last week. And um, special thanks here to Chris for stepping in on very short notice and um, sharing the Word of God with, with you all. When you read the modern books on pastoring, it's all about the program, it's all about the… Um, it's about the music, it's about the extracurricular activities, you read the older books on pastoring and it's all about the preaching of the Word. Um, so, de- so you get what you want depending on when the, when the books on pastoring were, were actually written. So I'm grateful that, um, that uh, we could have someone, Chris, step up and preach the Word of God to us last week. This week we're back to the honor, love, and fear, and I wanted to take up that issue of um, what the Bible actually has to say about indentured servitude or about slavery, if you will. Um, I think one of the things that I ran into a couple weeks ago was I've, I've thought about this issue a lot, but not a lot of people necessarily have thought about this issue, and some questions came up that I trust will be addressed today, and. I want to, and my, my point today is to show you that God in his great mercy, when he gave the laws on service, indentured servitude or slavery, he's a loving God. He gave loving laws. And I just want to look, be, be, shall we say, scratch the surface today a little bit and hopefully whet your appetite, if you will, to look into this, um, into this a whole lot more. I don't want to sp- do a whole series of, of sermons on this. But I want to address it a little bit more today before we get to the uh, conclusion, which uh, we we have to go just a little bit uh, shorter today. Um, You see from the passage that we read from Jeremiah right now that God takes proper care of slaves seriously. It's a very serious thing with him. He's not passive in this. It's not that he threw out a, threw out a few laws and then said, well, whatever. He had ter- horrific things to say to the people who made a covenant with him. They, they, and understand they made a covenant. It was a public thing. This wasn't a private thing in some, you know, corner somewhere. These people were, made a very definite public covenant something we haven't talked about as much this in, in IRBC as perhaps we should be talking about, a public covenant. It was public. Everybody knew it. The slaves knew it. The people who owned them knew it. And most of all, God says, I know it. And I know what you said. You said to everybody in front of me and in front of them, you were going to set them free, and they did. And then they turned around and took them back again. There's a lot of lessons there, uh, all kinds of lessons in the passage, many of which we don't have time to look at. One thing I do want to take a look at, though, is verse 16. And we're going to talk about this, where, he, where God says to them, he says, look, you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back as male and female slaves whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection. Now, why would it say they're at their pleasure? We all know that slavery is horrible and no slave wants to be a slave, right? Except what we'll look at today, that little phrase right there is very important because not every single person wanted to be free from their masters. It sounds though like after this happened, then they wanted to be free because their masters went back on what they had said. But we're going to see today that there was such a thing as voluntary servitude. And again, we will just be scratching the surface here today, but we want to be able to see, again, my point is to show you that God in his great mercy has given us rules for servitude, slavery, if you will, which we don't often understand, which we we utilize our own ideas of it, and we import them, and we really need to start with the Bible and then go out from the Scriptures rather than starting from... Uncle Tom's, cabin, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, shall we say, and interpreting the Bible through a novel, which wasn't even true anyway. It was uh, supposed to be a compilation. Uh, in any case, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's uh, r- her rendition of Uncle Tom's Cabin was, in fact, a, a novel. Uh, first of all, I want to point out to us why we have such difficulties with this, with this um, topic because it's it's, it's emotionally laden, and I'm going to be relying on Steve Halbrook today a lot. And he says this. He says, Whenever the word slavery is mentioned, most Americans immediately think of America's enslavement of Africans. Let us be clear. While the Bible does not condemn slavery as such, the Bible does condemn slavery based on kidnapping, for according to biblical law, kidnapping is a capital offense. Did you know that? Kidnapping was not jail time, it was a capital offense under God's law. See, under God's law, there were very few capital offenses, but the ones that were, they were quite serious about it. And generally speaking, the capital offenses had to do with God's name, or your neighbor's person, or your neighbor's property. That's pretty much, pretty much what the capital offenses were uh, involved with. Not, not entirely, but pretty much. Kidnapping was a capital offense. Thus, the kidnapping of Africans in order to enslave them in America would never have occurred had Africa and America both taken biblical law seriously. I'm going to read that again. Thus, the kidnapping of Africans in order to enslave them in America would never have occurred had Africa and America both taken biblical law seriously. We want to emphasize that point, because if we don't know this and we don't really know the Word of God well at all, we'll go out and we'll hear some pagan say, yeah, the Bible condones slavery. And if we don't know our Bible, we'll just run off with our tail tucked between our legs. Halbrook goes on to say this. Many who hear the word slave can't seem to shake off images of brutality, kidnapping, the slave trade one man having absolute property rights over another, and most of all, racism. Emotion clouds the general meaning of slavery itself, that of a man under obligatory service to another. To be sure, one in obligatory servitude may suffer these things, but these things are no more necessary aspects of slavery than exploitation is a necessary aspect of business. There are different forms of slavery, some good, some bad, the criterion for discerning whether slavery is good or bad is whether a particular form of slavery is sanctioned by the righteous holy God or by an unrighteous sinful man. Do you understand the difference? Exploitation is possible in any situation. That's one of the reasons why we have the Bible. To tell us what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. So as we address this emotionally laden subject here this morning. You see, I'm fighting two things. I'm fighting the images that we have in our heads, and I'm also fighting a lack, I feel, I believe, a lack of understanding of this topic from a biblical standpoint. I'm going to ask for a raise of hands here. The Bible deals extensively with slavery, with servitude. We just read the passage from Jeremiah. It deals extensively with it in Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, not in numbers so much. How many of you have ever heard, two weeks ago, doesn't count, um, a sermon or a series of sermon on biblical slavery? Let me see your hands. A few of you have. Good. Well, we're going to increase that number uh, today. It's a topic that the Bible certainly addresses, and we want to address it here uh, today. Um, a couple points that we made last week, I want to go over them again. Uh, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution does not outlaw all slavery. It says this neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. Also, from Matthew Henry, and this is my words slavery is not all that easy to define. Speaking of this passage here in Peter, Matthew Henry states that, he states this, he says, by servants he means those who were strictly such, whether hired or bought with money or taken in the wars or born in the house, or those who served by contract for a limited time as apprentices, which kind of pretty sounds like our ideas of employment uh, today. Um, We see this, for example, in Colossians 4 verse 1. Servants, uh, or, or masters, be fair with your servants. Give them what is just and equal. Meaning this, that the, apparently the servants he was talking about were not slaves as we understand, but were hired servants. That's why they were called on to be just and equal. With that in mind, let's turn to First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. verse 18. servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. We're going to talk about this passage, that part of the passage a little bit more, because what, what what Peter goes on to say here can't be missed. What he goes on to say here is that you, as a servant, if you're a good servant and you do the right thing as a servant, you can influence people. And his example is Christ. That's his example he goes on to make. He says, for example, Christ. That happened with Christ. And look, at, look what we've got out of Christ. We have got the salvation of our souls Because Christ suffered and he did the right thing. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Now, three points today I want to make very quickly from the the Scriptures. Number one, some forms of service were voluntary. Some forms of even what we call slavery were voluntary. Number two, there was no such thing as permanent Israelite enslavement. It couldn't be permanent. And number three, because of the impermanence of, Israel, of the Israelite laws, temporary slavery, or the, uh, uh, of the state of slavery of the Israelite right laws, I should say, temporary slavery became a means of economic prosperity. We'll talk about this today. And that is shocking to some folks I know but we hope to make that case at least whet your appetite so that you can understand more about that. Once again, from Steve Halbrook, we have these words. The Hebrew and Greek terms for slave do not distinguish grammatically or or etymologically in their history between indentured servitude and permanent slavery. We must therefore look at the various contexts in order to discover what information the Bible's authors intend for us to understand. End of quote there from Steve Halbrook. See, we, in our language, we have a lot of different nuances, if you will. The Bible, Steve Halbrook goes on to say, either in Hebrew or Greek, doesn't make those uh, distinctions for us, at least as closely as what we would like. First of all, not point number one, as we have a lot to uh, do here, some forms of service were voluntary. Leviticus 25, 39, and 40 says this, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant, and as a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So how did someone become a slave in this case? someone became poor. Now, what's the answer to this? What's our answer? You know what our answer is? Our answer is that everybody else has to become a servant, an involuntary servant, so that we can have a giant welfare system so that this person who can't work or won't work or whatever gets the money from the people who are being productive. That's our answer. And don't tell me we don't believe in slavery today because we do. Whenever you work for someone else and have no say over what happens to the money, that's some form of slavery, my friends. It's not the African slavery, but it's some form. You know what God's way is, as we just saw here? The person who's poor actually works himself out of it. Not everybody else, so that he doesn't have to work. The answer is for them to work their way out. And they could sell themselves into involuntary servitude for a time. What justice is God's law here, my friends? This, this This is justice. What we have today is absolute injustice. And we have the nerve, do we not, in our secular humanist mindset, to mock the Bible as unjust. Shameful. Some forms of service, of slavery, we would call it, even though it says not as a slave, he would be treated perhaps better than some others. But it was voluntary. That's from Leviticus 25, verses 39 to 40. And let's not write off Leviticus. Leviticus is part of the Scriptures just like every other book. Number two. They went free on the seventh year. Look at Exodus chapter 21. Turn with me there if you would. Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, verses 1 and 2. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. In other words, you, he owes you nothing. He's given you that, that, that service. In the seventh year, he goes out and he doesn't pay anything at all. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. The exception there, of course, would be voluntary permanence, as we mentioned before. Look at verses four through six of the same passage. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. So we have an exception there of people who said, listen, I love my master. I, I have a permanent situation here I'm well taken care of I think the best way for me to go forward is to um, stay with my master then they had a, a ceremony and they had to do this before the judges and the reason why I believe they had to do it for the judges is that, that, that no, no master could say to, to whomever ah yeah the guy wants to stay with me I put a hole in his ear yeah he wants to stay they had to go before the judges. And the guy had to say before the judges, I want to stay. It had to be, a, 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 again, a public ceremony here. So they, could, they couldn't do that. So there was no permanent Israelite enslavement. by the way, how would you, well, let me ask. I've said this before myself a few times. Would you rather be as a... Would you rather be a free Canaanite, free Canaanite, if you survived the fire when you were born, being sacrificed to Moloch or Baal, would you rather be a free Canaanite or an Israelite slave? I know what I'd rather be. Every seventh day you have off, not working at all. And if you become an Israelite, and there were plenty of Israelite proselytes, right? Caleb, in the Old Testament Scriptures, was not a native Hebrew. He's one of the 12 that went went into the Promised Land. He was not a native Hebrew. We know of others, like Uriah the Hittite, for example, that were engrafted into the Israelite economy. You could become an Israelite, believe in Israel's God, and at that point, after six years, you're out. You're no longer a slave unless you want to become, stay a slave, of course. We know that this happened in history. For example, in the book of Esther, when Haman wanted to kill off the Israelites, the balance of power shifted because of Esther and because of her great courage. And the book of Esther tells us that many people became Jews. I thought the only way to become a Jew is to be born as a Hebrew Israelite. Not at all. You could be engrafted into the Israelite. Economy into the Israelite nation, if you will. And number three, first of all, some forms of service were voluntary. There was no permanent Israelite enslavement. And number three, because of the impermanence of of the situation there, temporary slavery became a means of economic prosperity. A means. From Leviticus 25, verse 48, verses 47 and 48, Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, okay, we can stop right there because now that takes away the whole Hebrew race thing, doesn't it? A sojourner or a stranger becomes wealthy. That's interesting to me. Because again, where could you go for opportunity in the Middle East? Probably not Assyria and probably not Canaan, probably not Egypt, and later on probably not Babylon. The place to go for economic prosperity would have been Israel under godly rule. How do we know this? Well, Solomon didn't get wealthy on his own. David didn't get powerful on his own. God's law makes for wealth, makes for opportunity. Why do you think so many people, I mean, think about it here, my friends, North America, people came here with the clothes on their back, that was it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine leaving everything for opportunity? Apparently people did it here. Because here, Leviticus is making, making, rule, making possibility for someone who's not even a Hebrew to come to their country and get wealthy. If a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, this was opportunity here, right? This wasn't welfare for the Israelites Hey, you know what, maybe, you're, maybe, maybe the guy who moved in works hard and is smart with his money and is a good businessman and hires other people, and he becomes wealthy. Good for him. And one of your own brethren becomes poor. Who knows why? Maybe it's disaster. Maybe people died in his family. Maybe he just doesn't want to work. Don't know, it doesn't say why. But your own, your own brother becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger why would you sell yourself to the stranger? I know I would. I know, I, I know why if I, if I ran into really hard times. I would want to be around that guy, even though he's a stranger who knows how to handle money, who knows how to handle work. Obviously, he knows how to handle employees. That's the guy I'd want to go work for. I've had a lot of different jobs in my life. You know who the best jobs were? The best jobs were for the people who were making the most money. That's just the way it was. Not every time, of course. That's not every time in history and in everyone's experience. But generally speaking, you're going to be one, you want to work for the person who knows how to make money because he'll know how to pay you and keep making money. And that is addressed right here in the book of Leviticus. And it's almost as if Moses is assuming that the Israelite, the Israelite who became poor would want to work for the stranger who has become wealthy I'll finish reading. Or sojourner becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you. This is Leviticus 25, 47 and 48. Or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. Or his uncle or his uncle's son, maybe his cousin may redeem him. Or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him. Or, listen to this, if he is able, he may redeem himself. Now think about that for a minute. He may, while working as a servant to this foreigner, he may have become wealthy enough to have bought his own freedom. You see, what we're talking about here is, let's get out of our heads this slavery idea that we've gotten beaten into us from the time that we're three years old and went to school. What the Bible's talking about here is something radically different from what we've seen here in North America and in other countries. And make no mistake, North American slavery was largely based on kidnapping. Not entirely later on, but largely it was. If your brother, from Deuteronomy 15, 12, if your brother a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman has sold to you and served you six years, in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Now listen, listen to the condition that he goes free. And I'm making the case that the, the, the uh, selling into indentured servitude was a means of economic prosperity. Listen to what this Moses says here in, in Deuteronomy. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor. So you've got animals. You've got seed. And from your wine press. You've got wine, I suppose. From what the Lord God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to do this thing today. Do I need to work any harder at making the point that we have a means of economic prosperity here? You were poor enough... You were, you were poor enough to sell yourself into involuntary servitude. Seven years later, you're going out with animals, with seed, with wine, for Pete's sake. And if you were good at what you did, my guess is your master, the person you work for, is going to send you out pretty liberally, pretty loaded. You have changed your economic condition. You may be, with hard work yourself, if you've learned from your, from your master here, even if he was a stranger, you may yourself, if you've learned and put hard work into it, you may be in a position later on to help somebody else. Can you see the beauty and the value of God's way here? Well, we just need to read a little bit more here, uh, once again, from, from uh, Steve Halbrook. This, what he has to say here, He says, thus the slave laws provided for upward mobility. From the outset, the code provides for an escape from poverty. While working for his master, the slave may have a means of building a savings to the point that he becomes wealthy. But even if he doesn't, by the time he is free, the slave is provided with enough for a new start in a much better position economically than before becoming a slave. So, when we talk about what the Bible has to say about slavery and so forth, let's make sure that we have knowledge about what it actually says and not go running for the tall grass as soon as some pagan who hasn't read the Bible or care what it even says, says, oh yeah, the Bible's in favor of slavery, and that's the end of that. A few more points that we want to make here this morning, um, very quickly. I want to address... Um, a, a few things that were, were uh, a few items that were brought up here two weeks ago, if I, can, if I can find this here. There were three questions that came up a couple of weeks ago, and I want to address these. And I actually wrote a paper uh, based on a couple of questions that were asked last week. And um, what I said was this, when, you know, basically addressing this topic is a bit of a challenge. I felt that two, or two weeks ago, I should say, uh, I felt that I didn't do an adequate job. Again, I've studied this issue of slavery a lot, but most people haven't, and I kind of assumed, I think, too much from my audience here. And I think I may have created more questions than answers. I want to address three points that were brought up two weeks ago, and I'll just read this, and this will be the conclusion of our sermon here this morning. Um, Point number one was brought up, the scripture that prohibits the return of fugitive slaves. That was brought up. What scripture is that? Number two, the statement that I made that slave markets were not permitted under Mosaic law. And number three, the general treatment of African slaves on transatlantic transatlantic voyages to the New World. So my clarifications that I trust will actually clarify more than cloud are these. Number one, the scripture that prohibits the return of the fugitive slave is Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16. It says this, You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place where he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. That's from Deuteronomy. My statement is this. It is my belief that the Fugitive Slave Act that required the return of an escaped slave directly violates that prohibition. The Fugitive Slave Act. Number two. The statement I made that slave markets were not permitted under Mosaic law. My source here is R. J. Rushdoony. after citing Exodus twenty four seven and Deuteronomy twenty one sixteen. He makes the following statement. He says, Certain things clearly appear in these two laws. First, Exodus twenty one sixteen forbade the kidnapping of any man, whether Israelite or foreigner, whereas Deuteronomy twenty four seven forbade the kidnapping of Israelites. The kidnapped Israelites would almost surely be sold abroad and this second crime would be more difficult to detect since care would be taken to put some distance between the enforced slave's new home and his homeland lest the slave, as a runaway, expose the kidnappers. That's always the case, right? In kidnapping, you want to get the person as far away as possible. Second, the selling of slaves was forbidden. Since Israelites were voluntary slaves and since not even a foreign slave could could be compelled to return to his master, As we just saw, slavery was on a different basis under the law than in non-Biblical cultures. The slave was a member of the household with rights therein. We know that from the case of Abraham, right? Remember, it says his his um, his chief servant was master of his entire house. And when he wanted a wife for Isaac, he sent his servant, slave, if you will, to get a wife for his son. And his servant was obviously a believer because he prayed for the right person for Isaac. The slave was a member of the household with rights therein. A slave market could not exist in Israel. The slave who was working at a restitution for theft had no incentive to escape, for to do so would make him an incorrigible criminal and liable to death. And so number three, that's about slave markets. That question came up. Number three, the general treatment of African slaves on transatlantic voyages to the New World. Here I stated that the conditions under which have, have been... Here I st- stated that the conditions under which uh, the slaves traveled have not been accurately reported as a slave seen as human cargo would lose significant value if further maltreated. Of course, instances of neglect, starvation, and maltreatment would exist. Um, one of the authors that I read this week said that there were many cases where Um, they they didn't plan well, and many of the crew on a ship died at the same rate as the slaves themselves from neglect. But this is from John Eismo, who seems to give somewhat contradictory information, but I'll read it anyway. He states this in his three-volume series, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law. He says, In theory, the lot and prospect of an indentured servant while not ideal, were far better than those of a slave. An appalling number, up to a third, according to some estimates of the slaves who were brought from Africa, African or Arab slave traders for the Atlantic Passage, died on board the ship. He gives no reference for this up to a third comment, which is unusual for him. But then he goes on to say this. A slave trading sea captain who brought slaves in Africa or Arabia had to bring those slaves to the New World alive and reasonably healthy or no one would buy them. He thus had a strong financial incentive to keep them alive and healthy. A sea captain carrying indentured servants usually had no such incentive. Likewise, the American slave owner had a financial incentive to keep his slaves healthy because they were his property for life. Now, no one's making the case, I certainly am not, that this transatlantic voyage was like a cruise ship or a pleasure vessel. No one is making that case, nor do we want to. But we do need a little bit of a perspective here, for sure, and think about how this probably would have been done, if you were would have been living in that time. Certainly, you would not have wanted to deliver a a entire boatload of dead slaves uh, in the uh, transatlantic voyage, for sure. Um, Obviously, was horrific, and there are horrific accounts of what uh, people saw. I don't have time to do it this morning maybe at a different sermon sometime. We can talk about some of those conditions. We can also talk about the English Royal Navy, which was turned loose to break up the slave trade. And it's not, that's not well known, but the English Royal Navy was probably the biggest deterrent to the international slave trade in the history of the world. I read of one sea captain who actually, uh, who actually invaded uh, 40 different slave ships called slavers. 40 different slavers, one, one sea captain himself. In any case, in any case, my purpose here again this morning is to communicate to you that the Bible has very specific things to say about slavery and about indentured servitude, about servants, and about masters. It's not as if slavery in the Bible turned loose the master to do whatever he wanted. There's lots of prohibitions there and lots of things that he could have gotten himself in a lot of trouble for for sure ultimately my purpose is to communicate to you that the bible is a merciful loving document god gave these laws to his people because he loved them not because he hated them and it's our job if anything doesn't look right to us let's study a little bit more let's find out what the bible really actually says shall we pray Thank you, Lord, again for your word. I pray that my exposition of it would be accurate and forthright and enlightening and answer questions rather than create them. Answer more questions, shall we say, rather than create them. We thank you for this congregation. We pray this morning for those who may be sick among us that you would bring them back to health quickly. And thank you for this congregation and thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to preach it. Thank you for that gift and that responsibility. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.